The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line. Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. Got a great show for you today because I got a great guest and an interesting topic. We're going to be talking about farm-raised seafood. We're going to be talking about salmon specifically, but also the entire industry of farm-raised seafood. You know, Americans eat about 16 pounds of seafood per year. Salmon is the second most consumed behind shrimp. I've worked with the shrimp people a couple of years ago doing some ag consulting and outlook and marketing work. I learned some stuff about seafood, but I've never had a podcast guest to talk about seafood. So today, dear listener, we're going to talk about farm-raised seafood, an interesting element within the business of agriculture that you probably don't know a lot about. Sylvia Wolf, the CEO of Aqua Bounty, is going to teach you about the business of agriculture. Sylvia, by the way, welcome to the show. Thank you, Damien. Coming to us from her office in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but they're a global company for crying out loud. She's going to tell you all about it. Before we hear about Aqua Bounty and delve into the delectable seafood raised on farms like Aqua Bounties, I want to remind you that this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast is sponsored by my friends at Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise. You've got all sorts of inflows, outflows, millions of dollars of capital, and every day that's at play in your industry, you need a software that helps you manage these things, and Harvest Profit will help you do that. Go to harvestprofit.com and check out what they have to offer you. Fantastic information on that website, and also you can get a free 14-day trial. Sylvia Wolf, CEO of Aqua Bounty. I first read about your company. I own a farm in Northeastern Indiana where I was raised and I, I live on my farm a couple miles from where I was raised. I get around Indiana. I pick up the paper and I read about this salmon farm that's going on in Delaware County, not too far from where I live. And I'm like, this is interesting. That's what I first came into contact with your company. Canadian uh, owned a company, if I'm not mistaken, and you're putting these. No. Uh, you're putting these. We're actually, uh, we're Damien. We're actually traded on Nasdaq. We're a U.S. based company. A U.S. based company, and you opened up this farm uh, about 50, 60 miles from my farm. So tell me about Aqua Bounty and tell me about seafood farming. All right. Well, I really do appreciate the opportunity to share our story. Um, Aqua Bounty uh, is the first approved genetically engineered animal for food use. It's our genetically engineered salmon. So we are fish farmers, but we're specifically farming an, uh, a fish that has been engineered for today's challenges is the way I'd like to think about it. And what that means is we, we farm in a land-based recirculating aquaculture system, which means that our tanks are located undercover and we can locate those farms anywhere we have access to quality and quantity of good water. And we do not raise our fish in salt water, as is the conventional wisdom, if you will, which opens up tremendous possibilities to farm salmon, which is an incredibly healthy protein in the heartland of America, uh, away from the coast. Um, and so our first foray in the US was in Albany, Indiana, Delaware County, we purchased a facility that had actually gone bankrupt and retrofitted the entire 
facility to be ready for um, raising our salmon once we were able to begin importing our eggs from our broodstock facility, which is located on Prince Edward Island in Canada. That's where the Canada thing came from. I That's was on your website Canada poking around. And I know that you have some stuff going on in PEI, as it's known. And do. I thought all they did was potatoes and tourism in Prince Edward Island, but uh, they also obviously have some fish. So you opened this facility a couple of years ago, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken, and that's when you first came on my radar, and then I've been keeping up a little bit. Tell me how you grow. First off, you just said you don't use salt water. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, Atlantic salmon, the Atlantic is salt water, and you got them in tanks in a barn in, in Indiana. Take me, take me through the process. Sure. So we are vertically integrated, obviously, because of our genetically engineered um, salmon, and so our broodstock facility um, spawns salmon. We've been doing that conventionally for about 30 years post the genetic engineering that took place. Um, we're now on our 15th generation of our salmon. So those eggs are spawned and then held in PEI. And then they're transported quarter every six, um, every three to four months into Indiana where we have a hatchery. Those eggs then hatch yeah, about four to six weeks later, then we move them into our nursery, which is where we teach the fish to eat. And what that means is it's a smaller tank, um, specially designed for tiny little fish. And then as they grow, we move them into bigger and bigger tanks. Um, and so what we're doing is, again, all the way from spawning through to harvesting, um, we manage the entire process. And what's different about our process versus the, the way that currently Atlantic salmon are farmed, which is traditionally done in ocean net pens in the Atlantic, but they actually start their life in freshwater, similar to the way that you think about um, wild-caught salmon, in a recirculating aquaculture system until they go through a process called smoldification, and then they're introduced to these large pens in the ocean. But if you think about it, there's really nothing that a salmon needs about salt water. Salt is um, very corrosive to the equipment. So as you're operating these recirculating aquaculture systems, which are really big biofilters designed to keep the water conditions optimal for the fish in terms of its health and productivity, um, we don't need salt water. They thrive in fresh water. Our fish have been living in fresh water, you know, for 25 years. And so we just have not found that to be critical to um, their productivity, their health. And we think it gives a bit of a cleaner flavor. Uh, by the way, I, I lied a little bit, Sylvia. Please forgive me, dear listener. I said that we've never in 185 or so episodes of the Business of Agriculture podcast done anything on seafood. I lied. About a year ago, I had on a shrimp producer, mm -hmm. a smaller scale shrimp producer. She sells almost all uh, direct to consumer. So she's in a very different business model than you. Um, but she talked a lot about the water, you know, because... <clears throat> It's all about like if you're a pasture rate, if you're a pasture based uh, producer of sheep, it's going to be all about good pasture. Right. So for right. you guys, it's all about water. So you've got these pools in buildings in Indiana and you your website talks about recirculation. So tell me kind of what happens. Like uh, you, know, you got these. It, the water is the most important thing. Right. And then the genetics. Water feed. So if you think about it in terms of operating. Right. You have the fish. The fish have to be in water. The fish have to be fed. These are, um, sy the systems are energy intensive. 
Um, but what you're doing is you're, we have large tanks. We fill those tanks with water. And as the fish consume food, obviously there's solid waste, right? As well as throwing off carbon dioxide. So we keep that water oxygenated um, and pull off the CO2. We pull off the ammonia, the nitrites, the nitrates to make sure that that water is um, optimal for the fish and their health um, to make sure that, you know, there's no mortality issues. And so it's almost like, think about it, a big aquarium, right? You're feeding your fish, but you need to keep that water constantly recirculating and clean. You, so we about recir- pull, you, you said, Sylvia, pardon me, you said about pulling off the nitrates and these things. That's just because the animals are eating. And then, of course, they uh, right. poop. And so right. uh, they actually they, they, they excrete this stuff. And so your filtration yanks that stuff out. And then what happens to that stuff? So we actually... Um, use that as because of where we're located in the middle of um, very productive agricultural area. Um, we have local farmers that take the waste. And so it, it goes into fertilizer. We, we then dry it and it becomes fertilizer and we use that waste. So we like to think of um, the fact that everything that is either um, the fish itself, um, the waste through the water, um, the viscera of the fish, we want to use every single part of our process um, just to a benefit of agriculture. So, the and so that waste, solid waste is fertilizer. Yeah, the fish waste ends up and you sell it for so a guy that's got corn and soybeans down the yeah, road then buys exactly. it and uses it. Okay. Um, the, the feed. Um, I remember then seeing something about, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't your basic uh, hog feed. We grow hogs like crazy in Indiana. So there's all kinds of places that can mill hog feed. It's a little different, a little different needs. Tell me about the feed. Where's it come from? So we have a couple of suppliers. Um, It typically is so there, and they have plants all over the world. So um, one of our suppliers is Scredding. One of our suppliers is EWAS, which is a cargo company. And they're specially designed diets for salmon uh, because salmon are, believe it or not, they're pretty picky eaters. So you've got to make sure that the palatability is there, that they want to consume that feed because obviously that impacts their growth. But a good component of a large component of that feed is soy. And then um, there's a, a small amounts of fish meal, which are byproducts from catches, uh, wild caught catches and fish oil, because that's also important in a healthy diet for a salmon. But as I said, the majority is um, good old soy um, as an input. Now, one of the things that we're working on with our feed companies is that is not necessarily sustainably friendly or viewed that way, the fish beyond fish oil. And so we're working closely with them to redesign the diet, to be able to use things like canola, um, algae. Um, so different nutrients and nutrition, because you've got to balance, it's really thinking about three things. Will the fish eat it? Will they grow you know, and be healthy? And what's the impact on the equipment? Right. Because you've got to clean that water all the time. And so those are the three factors that we look at and are working closely with our feed companies to continue to optimize that diet. Okay, optimization. Uh, the people that listen to this podcast, you know, all, all the whole gamut here, uh, Sylvia. We've got uh, the people that sell machinery, crop insurance, cranberries, canola, you know, and everything in between. And we always, and all of us in agriculture, like to think about production and also the good things that we're doing. Um, 
genetically engineered salmon. This is the first animal, the first animal-based protein that has been this way. There's no genetic, we've done genetic work to make better sheep, better pigs, more efficient chickens, uh, cattle that uh, convert uh, grain to beef on a more efficient level. We've done, we've bred them, but we haven't genetically engineered them. Tell me about the genetically engineered salmon, because one of the big benefits is they're more efficient, right? That's that's absolutely right, Damien. And so let me take you back to the beginning. Um, as I said, majority of salmon are raised in these ocean net pens. And that means that the salmon are exposed to climatic change, you know, drastic climatic changes, disease, uh, predators, those kinds of things. And when, when climatic conditions change, I like to think of salmon as the three barriers. They don't like things too hot. They don't like things too, too cold. Because when that when those extremes happen, they don't eat. Mm -hmm. They don't eat. They don't grow. Right. Or and so there was a researcher, um, Dr. Fletcher in Canada, that wanted to solve that problem to keep the fish eating all the time, particularly in their very early vulnerable stages when they're introduced to those ocean pens. And so he was trying to find a way to do that. And what he did was he discovered that if he took what we what we call a growth promoter gene. Um, from a Chinook salmon and embedded it in the genetic structure of an Atlantic salmon, what that salmon does is eat continuously. And as it continuously eats, it grows more rapidly. And so that's, that was the point of the genetic engineering was to keep that salmon eating and growing in its very early stages. Now, fast forward, you know, 30 years, and we now have a fish that's really engineered for today's challenges. And what I mean by that is it really does make land-based recirculating aquaculture farming viable from a, um, an economic standpoint where we are able to produce more fish for the same investment. So more of a healthy protein to feed you know, a growing population. And we do it in a way that uses fewer resources. So you're using less water because you're recirculating, but more importantly, our fish are incredibly efficient in the way that they process their feed. And so we have to feed them less mm -hmm. to grow faster. And so you're not, you know, again, it, it's, it has a very positive impact on the planet. Yeah, right. We're using we're using less yep. resources Do to make, make more, more with less now, you know, because, of course, I'm, I've tuned into Dr. Oz every day. And then these GMOs are going to kill us all, Sylvia, because they're it's Franken food and they've taken genes from uh, from a zombie and, and, and inserted them into our corn. Right. So these okay. these genetically Franken fooded salmon you're talking about, really, all we did was you took uh, you took some genetic. Uh, predisposition from another salmon and put it onto this salmon? Is that what we're talking about? Right. That's exactly, you described it perfectly. And when we talk to consumers, what we say is we just sped up what could have taken, you know, could have taken place naturally because you can be very much, you can be much more specific about genes, right? Gene editing, gene, you know, genetic engineering. And I think, you know, clearly um, the U.S., consumer takes their food supply for granted, right? We're, it's affordable, it's accessible. Well, let me help you understand why, because it's genetically modified. And if you think about it, 
I'd you you can use less chemicals, less herbicides, less pesticides. You can make it drought resistant, you know, so less water. Well, the same thing can be said for protein. You can in- introduce better nutrition, faster growth rates, less, you know, less use of resources. Now that we understand much more about genetics, we can be much more targeted in what we're trying to accomplish. Then you couple that with what I call a science-based and predictable regulatory approval process. You know, the FDA or Health Canada have no incentive to let unsafe food enter our supply. So we went through 20 years of testing by both FDA and Health Canada. Our salmon is identical to Atlantic salmon in terms of its nutrition, its taste, its, you know, the way it looks Mm -hmm. other than that one gene. And it's safe for consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's probably the most tested food in the history of either of those agencies. So now you, you as a consumer, you're getting a salmon that produces more with less. It's done in a land-based environment, biosecurity, no antibiotics, and the FDA can assure you that it is safe for consumption. And so when I hear things like Dr. Oz, I'm like, do your homework. Well, do your, we've been eating this stuff for 50 years. Uh, well, Dr. Dr. Oz is a, is a, a fraud, but uh, anyway, we're going to talk. <laughs> I'll let you say that. We're going to talk. I can do that because you know no. what? I, I say what I want and it makes me amazingly happy. Uh, you know, uh, I remember once when I was younger, someone said, I, some old guy just was uh, always saying whatever he thought. And they said, I guess if I was his age, I'd do the same thing. I said, why wait? I say whatever the hell I want. Um, and speaking of saying whatever the hell I want, I do need to say this. I need to say that this episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by my friend at Nick Horeb's company. It's called Harvest Profit. Nick Horeb is not a software engineer. He just set out several years ago and saw a need. He saw a need to create a product that could help people in agriculture by creating a software solution for their enterprise. He said, man, I see this problem and I want to fix it. And that's what great entrepreneurs do because he's essentially filled a demand uh, by creating a better product. You can go to harvestprofit.com and you can read articles that Nick writes that you're going to find very helpful. He's a smart dude. And also his product can help your enterprise. Harvestprofit.com. Go there and get a free 14-day trial with their software. You know what? Tell them Damian Mason sent you there uh, if you so if you so choose. <clears throat> Aqua Bounty CEO, Sylvia Wolf here, and we're getting the down and dirty on genetically engineered salmon that are being produced uh, in a in a farming operation that's only about 50, 60 miles from my farm in Indiana. Um, they get faster because of the, the work that you did. Just as an example, we use less resources, so we're feeding them less because of the genetically engineered uh, traits that you put into these salmon. So they grow faster. Any, any example, like how much bigger, how much faster, how much less food? Do you have any of those numbers? Yeah, I do. They don't grow bigger. They grow faster. faster that's right, the right. number one thing because, you know, I think that's sort of a misconception with consumers and they grow um, in our system eight, um, to a harvest side from um, ha- their first feeding to when we harvest, which is somewhere between call it eight to 12 pounds. Okay. So that's, that's typical market size for salmon mm-hmm. um, in about 18 months. 
You contrast that with salmon in the ocean, which can take up to 30 months because of climatic conditions and other you know, challenges that they might have, or a conventional salmon raised under the same conditions as ours in a land-based recirculating aquaculture system, that's somewhere between 26 and 28 months. So you're getting about, you know, you're getting quite a bit of throughput. And then in terms of their feed conversion, um, most fish are one to one, one slightly bet, slightly higher than one to one. Ours are um, are 25% more efficient, so 0.75 to one in terms of their feed conversion. Okay, by the way, for the, for the person that's not a livestock person that wasn't yep. like a 10-year 4-H member the way I was or raised around livestock like me, what she's talking about right here is about the conversion of pounds of grain, uh, pounds of energy to make a pound of gain. So uh, beef would be an example. Even the feed yards in Nebraska that are wonderfully efficient, they're still probably <laughs> going to be in that 7 to 1 ratio, that's 7 right. pounds of grain to create one pound of beef, uh, hog operations in a confinement situation, um, your traditional confined um, animal feeding operation, uh, about what, three and a half to one probably on yeah. hogs. So yeah, you're yeah. talking about less than one pound of soy product creates mm -hmm. one pound of, so they actually are an amazing, efficient producer because of the genetic they engineering. They are, they are. And, and again, you know, 18 months to grow it to harvest weight, they eat less and they're in a protected environment. So very, I mean, wait, the one I think is probably closest to what we do are hog operations because those are incredibly biosecure, right? You shower in, shower out. They're protecting those hogs um, from disease. The same for our facilities. They're biosecure. They have six levels of containment. Um, we're protecting the fish. We're protecting the environment. And, and that's a benefit to consumers because now they're not exposed to disease. So no antibiotics necessary. Yeah. So the, the fish are, are uh, not being treated with a bunch of uh, dope. Here's the other part of it. Um, you know, you've got these, these fish, you said, uh, if I'm even in Norway where they have these pins where they raise mm -hmm. them outdoors, right. you're still talking about 28 to 30 months to get them to that, uh, say 10 pound butcher weight. Right. That's right. Um, do we call them butcher weight? That's what you would in steers. Okay. Yeah. Um, you do that. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying 18 months, 18 months for you guys, right. uh, for your company uh, and your fish um, <clears throat> concerns about these fish, these Frankenfish are going to jump out of your barn in Delaware County, Indiana, and they're going to end up in Lake Michigan and, and kill us all. Right. Yeah. No, that would be no, that would be no. And, and it's no for a couple. Well, first I will start with, we've been raising these fish to much, you know, to maturity for 20 years and we've never had an escape. Right. And, we, and remember we haven't, we have a facility on Prince Edward Island, right? It's a seafood community. You, you talked about potatoes, but they're actually very involved in the seafood industry yeah. and right on the Atlantic. Um, so no escape in 20 years, but the other uh, factor that we believe um, is designed into our facility are we have what we call six levels of containment. So physical containment. So, you know, say we drop an egg, right? We've got screens, we've got on the, all the drains, it, you know, throughout the entire facility, we have physical modifications to capture and prevent escape. Um, the other is Indiana itself um, is not near native populations of salmon. They don't survive in warm water. So let's just say one got into a river, it would die 
and there's nothing for it to mate with. But the reality is we only ship sterile females. That's what we raise in those facilities. So let's assume one got out, it's sterile, it's female, it can't live in warm water and it can't mate. And so you've got a biological mechanism to protect wild populations. And we, one of the beauties of the way that we farm and one of our commitments is we believe that this is the next generation of agriculture. It's aquaculture and you could locate it in rural areas that need to be rejuvenated, need a different type of economic enterprise. And so we really think that that's an excellent opportunity for us because we can, as I said, put those farms anywhere with access to enough fresh water. Well, we're glad you came to Indiana. So speaking of which, how many, uh, you've been there a couple of years and you bought a place that was bankrupt, another fishery production place, what they used to grow perch or something? Yeah, they did. Yeah, mm -hmm. perch. Yep. I thought that. And then uh, you've refurbished. How many employees do you have there at the facility in Indiana? We have, a, uh, right now we have right around 40. Okay. Where are these fish processed? So I, I go to the store in, mm -hmm. in Huntington, Indiana, and I want to buy me some salmon. You told me something interesting, or maybe your website says it. All Atlantic salmon that's consumed in the United States is farm-raised. Is that true? Um, Atlantic salmon, absolutely. We import roughly 400,000 metric tons a year from locations like Canada, Chile, and Norway. And so all Atlantic salmon is farmed. Okay. So if I'm in the grocery and it says wild caught salmon, what does that mean? Wild caught means that a boat actually went out into the ocean with nets um, and caught those fish. But they didn't and it's a, that's a seasonal, that's a seasonal enterprise and it's a different um, species of salmon. Okay. So think about, you know, sockeye, Chinook, those are the, those are typically wild caught salmon. Okay. So, um, You've got uh, you've got a, a, a 40 people there that raised them, and now you're having your first harvest because you said it takes about 18 months to get them up to harvest weight. Right. Where do they go to get cut into salmon fillets? We well, salmon fillets are one thing. Um, we well, salmon harvest whatever. I mean, what, okay. what so let me just walk you through the the harvesting and processing um, portion of our business. So we harvest on site. And then um, many salmon are sell, sold in what is called a head-on gutted form. So it's a, it's a whole salmon with a head-on, but it's been gutted, okay? And that goes to restaurants. That can go to a lot of different places. So at our farm in Indiana, we can process head-on gutted fish. If it needs further processing into a filet, we ship it to a processing partner three hours away in Chicago. And they then filet it and vacuum pack it and we can either sell that fresh or we can freeze it. Okay. So you still retain ownership. You're just using them as a processor. You, you, exactly. you have it until it gets sold to a, to a grocery store or right. Restaurant. Yep. Cisco or whatever. Right. Okay. So um, let's talk now about demand, Sylvia. <clears throat> I know that salmon is the second most consumed seafood because when I worked with the shrimp people, we eat about four right. pounds of shrimp per American per year. Right. Total total of about 16 pounds of seafood per American per year consumed. Salmon's around that three to three and a half pounds last I looked. Right. Is it going to go up? Are we going to eat more salmon uh, five years from now than we do right now? I think that um, I hope the answer to that is yes. And let me tell you why I think that there's an opportunity here. Um, because, again, our salmon are able to do more with less. 
our um, our company has always been about bringing nutritious protein to more consumers. Mm -hmm. And so unlike our other land-based competitors, we can actually sell at commodity prices and be competitive with a delivered price of a farmed Atlantic salmon out of the, that's farmed in those ocean net pens. Mm -hmm. And we have an opportunity to continue to reduce our costs to raise that salmon. Um, and we're not subject to, you know, wild fluctuations due to die-offs due to climate or whatever, okay? So our plan is, number one, we can enter into long-term supply agreements because we have a stable cost structure. But I think more importantly, we believe that just like other proteins in the U.S., um, we'll be able to provide better accessibility and affordability of salmon to more consumers. And if you think about health, you know, everybody's worried about healthcare um, in our country, and they should be, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. We want to be able to provide affordable, healthy protein to a broad range of consumers. And a lot of consumers just don't have access to salmon because it's expensive. And so we want to make sure that, you know, we provide that access and we control that cost because we think it should be part of a healthy diet. And the way that we farm allows us to access some of those underserved um, consumers in our society. So we think people are going to, there's going to be more people eating salmon. It's not the people that eat, the people that eat it today may eat more. I think the real opportunity is getting more consumers to eat salmon. Yeah. So you're thinking that it's not about taking the, the salmon eater and, and boosting their salmon consumption. You think it's the, the, the person that doesn't eat salmon. Now, I like it. I like it in uh, sushi. Uh, it, and, mm -hmm. and I really kind of like it that way. Me too. Um, you have a good environmental story to tell. Um, does anybody listen? You know, you're using less feed. You're doing this in a controlled environment that you're not going out and, and putting then these acre sized uh, pins out in the edge of the your coast. Um, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're using something that uses almost no feed to make a pound of protein. You got a good environmental story to tell. Do you tell it? And does anybody listen? We do tell it. And we found that it resonates with consumers. So I, you know, we've got a number of different, um, what's, you know, today's vernacular called stakeholders. So <laughs> we've, By the we've way, actually, Sylvia, that is the buzzword of this last yeah. six months. It's replaced paradigm shift and uh, disruptive pivot. Um, yeah. I've had to hear about disruptions and pivots and now it's stakeholder, stakeholder, stakeholder. So I appreciate you getting that in for the, uh, the, the trendiness of it all. Yeah. All the people that care about us. Okay. Um, or are affected by us. So the first was investors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're really a 30 year old startup. And mm -hmm. so we needed to make sure, and we need a lot of capital to build these farms. These are not cheap things to build and they're big, you know, they're over 500,000 square feet. They're big, big facilities when you're producing at scale, mm -hmm. and, which is what we intend to do. Mm -hmm. And we think the U S we can do four to five of those farms. And all we're going to capture is the growth in the salmon market. We're not even talking about taking share. So the first thing we did was talk to a different group of investors, right? Mm -hmm those that we call impact investors, the ones that care about things for the long term, right? And a lot of them are sustainability oriented. And so our investor base has shifted over the last couple of years, which has been, it tells us that our story is resonating with those that are going to invest money to help us grow. That's number one. The second thing we did was start engaging with, in a dialogue with consumers, okay? And so quite frankly, that's done via social media. It's not about, you know, old technology where you're going to add, quote unquote, advertise. You right. want to have a dialogue with a consumer. 
And so we initiated a social media um, marketing effort that, you know, we talk on LinkedIn, we talk on Facebook, we talk on Instagram, we talk on, you know, we, we, have a t- we do Twitter. And what it's allowed is or enabled is really consumers can ask us questions. We put a video on the website so that you can see it from start to finish from, you know, here's our mama fish, here's the eggs. Here they show up in, in Indiana and here's what happens to them. And then we can talk about recipes and culinary and all of those things. And so what I'd say is we're seeing a shift with consumers and it's becoming, you know, they're, they're, um, they're curious. They want to try it. We did a lot of research about consumers. That's part of the reason we started to um, engage in social media. Did your research and, prove what I've already known without doing the research that consumers are a pain in the ass? Did you get, did you get that? You, uh, they have definite <laughs> opinions. Okay. Let me, let's just go there. Um, but what we did find is, you know, our critics, those that, you know, use the name that you referenced earlier are really a vocal minority. Okay. They're, they're not the majority of consumers. No, they're just noisy. Yeah, Yeah, they are. They're noisy and they aren't fact-based. Right. But the problem with that is they're the only voice that consumers have heard. Right. And so you got a retail um, channel that is risk averse, Mm -hmm. you know, wants to protect its reputation. And then you've got these activists that are telling them all this stuff that isn't true. Right. And that's what consumers are hearing. And so we wanted to understand how big that group was and how influential. And what we found is they're, they're about 20% of total consumers, 80% of consumers, the thing they care about affordability, accessibility, and taste. And then when you tell the story, they're like, okay, why wouldn't I eat this? I'll try it. If you deliver on those three things, count me in. So, you know, they were very likely, likely or neutral on the story, which tells us we have tremendous opportunity with consumers and they're, receptive to understanding why we did what we did yeah. and the benefit it brings to them. Yeah. Sylvia. Um, I, and I agree on, uh, on that, uh, but yeah, we've got a lot. It's the story is it's, it's ever since I was a kid, you know, uh, there's a veal farm across the road from my property right. and it's, and veal was the first one that was, and there was, there was a certain amount of, you know, uh, humane issues to be tackled there, but largely misinformation and emotion based uh, protesting. Other fish. Uh, mm-hmm. Does Aqua Bounty going to be growing perch? Is Aqua Bounty going to be growing farm-raised tuna? Um, we grow farm-raised salmon probably because it tends to it lends itself better to being raised in a pool in a barn in, in, in Indiana. Uh, what else? We're looking at other. We're actually looking at other species. Um, we've done a lot of work in shrimp. We mm-hmm. think that uh, actually recirculating aquaculture systems. You, you mentioned the farmer in Indiana. We think that we can grow shrimp in this environment. We've got to bring the cost of the technology down because you're competing with um, Southeast Asia, India, where they've got big, big ponds, low and, cost and most, of labor. And most consumers don't know that the uh, yeah. they, they've seen they've seen Forrest Gump and they think that they're eating shrimp that came from the Gulf from some simple guy at Simpleton with a boat. And that's like three percent of all shrimp in the United States. Exactly. The majority of our shrimp, like ninety seven plus percent of our shrimp is comes from India, China, Ecuador, Vietnam and uh, uh, Indonesia. Indonesia. Um, that's right. And, and so we, we think there's an opportunity to raise shrimp in a similar environment. Um, so, you you know, disease free, um, cleaner taste, all of those things. Um, but we have to make sure that the cost of production, it makes it an affordable alternative to the shrimp that you're talking about as being imported. 
Any other we species? Also, Any other species? What else? Yeah, Tuna? we look at we're looking at um, what we call high value whitefish. Like think about bear mundi and and maybe mahi. You know, there's there's others mm-hmm. that um, have the potential to grow in this kind of a system. Yeah. And I mean, the, the fact that there's now the foodie chef group that likes to talk about wild caught because there's a sort of lashing out against these factory farms that are growing fish. Um, right. But the reality is um, it should be, it's better for the environment to produce these things. Right. Well, and, and wild caught's not without its, its um, environmental challenges too. Right. Exactly. You know, you got microplastics in the ocean, you've got, um, changes in climatic conditions affect wild caught salmon. You know, some years the catch is good, some years the catch isn't so good, right? And you got by, bycatch um, with the nets, not just salmon, right? And it's you know it's it's a it's a re, it, wild caught salmon fishing is a tough 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 business, right. and if overfishing because they need to make sure that they're making enough money to stay in business. Mm-hmm. Overfishing is a real problem. Yeah. And so you're decimating wild caught populations in the U S we do a really good job of managing that, but that's not the same in other parts of the world. Right. And that's, I also would say that uh, about some of the, the, the stuff that's farm raised fish from other places. I know that the place in uh, 50 miles down the road from me is going to have a much different standards than uh, if it were in a third world country. Fake meat. Uh, we got Beyond Burger. We got Impossible Foods. Uh, the, the founder of Impossible Foods is a is a zealot. I mean, he's an absolute uh, sort of radical. His his entire stated objective is to do away with all animal agriculture. He 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 believes that he should make it so that you can only he along with Bill Gates that we should only ever be able to eat synthetic beef. Is synthetic meat coming to seafood? It all it's already here. And I just call it alternative plant-based protein. I mean, it's, it's seafood flavored. That's what it is. It's not, there's no seafood in it. And I, you know, I'm part of the national fisheries Institute and all all we're trying to do is make sure that there's no consumer deception and confusion because fine, eat a plant-based alternative that tastes like seafood. That's, that's up to the consumer, but they should know that they're not eating seafood. They should know that they're eating a plant. Now, that being said, a lot of people, you know, it's called flexitarians. To me, it's about consumer choice. We're always going to have plenty of consumers that don't want a plant-based alternative, you know, seven days a week. Um, I think it is, a, you know, but one day a week, two days a week, why not give them the choice? I don't think we're going to be away from, move away from animal-based proteins, particularly when you think about as countries um, enhance their standard of living, they tend to want to go to more animal-based protein. And, and so we want to be able to provide a, a, a method of farming that does that well. Tying perfectly into my book, dear listener and viewer, Food Fear. This is my desk copy, hence the notes on it, uh, where I talk a lot about meat. We're eating about mm-hmm. 220 pounds of meat per year per American, the biggest meat consumers, the carnivorous of, of, of all countries, and 16 pounds of seafood. But yes, the more affluent uh, a person any society becomes, the more they turn to animal protein. So yes, the, uh, the founder of Impossible Foods doesn't like that, but he's a wacko anyway. Our 
All right. What else did we not cover? I want you to think about that. And then I'm going to remind our listeners and our viewers that you can not only listen, but you can also watch, right? Most of you listen wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, but you also can watch it. Go to the YouTube and type in Damian Mason channel. And while you're there, hit subscribe. It don't cost you nothing. And you'll see all my great content, my business podcast, my agriculture podcast, my agricultural commentary, so please hit subscribe. It'll help my, uh, it'll help me get seen more. And also I want to remind you that Harvest Profit, my buddy, Nick Horeb, uh, has a great company. Go to harvestprofit.com and see what their software can do for your agricultural enterprise. It'll make you what you're supposed to be profitable. What did we not cover, Miss Sylvia? You know, the one thing I, th- I, I do want to call attention to is um, the support that we've received from the congressional delegation out of Indiana and in other states. They recognize that biotechnology is the future and they want to support it. They recognize that aquaculture done like this can in fact rejuvenate rural America. And so they've been very, very supportive because as you know, we've had challenges with the senators from, in, um, from Alaska. Mm-hmm. And my point to them is, um, you know, this is, this does nothing to wildcat. This is nothing to your industry. And it is a, an environmentally sound, healthy protein. And so what I would urge um, your listeners to do is to make sure that they talk to their congressional delegations, because this is important for the future of the com- country. We're one little company, but we're an example of the legislative process gone wrong, targeted against a small company and, you know, that being allowed to happen. And, you know, now that we've started to have discussions with other members of Congress, like this just doesn't make any sense. We need to protect innovation. We need to have a thorough and predictable regulatory process. And we can't allow one member of Congress to target innovation in a way that isn't helpful for the consumer at large. So that would be the other. So Alaska is protecting their, their fisheries industry to the detriment of all this wonderful agricultural uh, operations. Cause I I agree with you. I think that we should be seeing more of these. We can see more of these. We can see uh, farm raised other species as you discussed, and it can happen where we already have. First off, we've got the corn and the soybeans. uh, We've got the water, we got the human uh, capital. And then we also have the consumers. There's six and a half million, 7 million people in Indiana that can eat your, uh, your salmon versus trucking it down from a state with 600,000 people clear the hell up in Alaska. So um, I think that's the future. If people want to learn more about Aqua Bounty, go to aquabounty.com. That's the best place. And it'll, it'll show you start to finish. It'll give you the history of what we did, why we did it. um, And anything else you want to know. I mean, we want to be, I'll use the other word that used to be used all the time. And that's transparency, because I think transparency builds trust. Let the consumer ask the questions. We're proud of the fact we genetically engineered our salmon and we think it brings a real benefit to the consumer. I don't disagree. That's why I had you on here. And part of my big objective is to educate and inform my agricultural people. If there's anything I can do for you, dear listener and viewer, remember, go to DamianMason.com. And uh, you know what? Meetings are picking back up. If you want somebody to get on a stage and do some of this wonderful insights and outlook and commentary with a dose of comedy at your next agricultural meeting, you know what? Give me a jingle because by golly, we're putting all kinds of dates on the calendar because folks are ready to get out and actually do meetings again. So her name is Sylvia Wall. She's CEO of Aqua Bounty, always giving you interesting stuff. Thanks for being on here, Sylvia. Thank you, Damien. Really did enjoy it. Until next time. What's that? Really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, and, and you probably even caught some of my commentary. And it wasn't her that said consumers are a pain in the ass. It was me. Okay, until <laughs> next time, thanks for being here, folks. And thank you, Sylvia. It's the business of agriculture. Thank you for tuning into the Business of Agriculture podcast, sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.